Welcome to The Big Rich Show. This podcast will focus on conversations with friends and acquaintances within the four-wheel drive industry. Many of the people that I will be interviewing, you may know the name, you may know some of the history, but let's get in depth with these people and find out what truly makes them a four-wheel drive enthusiast. So now's the time to sit back, grab a cold one, and enjoy our conversation. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Why should you read Four Low Magazine? Because Four Low Magazine is about your lifestyle, the four-wheel drive adventure lifestyle that we all enjoy. Rock crawling, trail riding, event coverage, vehicle builds, and do-it-yourself tech all in a beautifully presented package. You won't find Four Low on the newsstand rack, so subscribe today and have it delivered to you. On today's Conversations with Big Rich, we have Tom Campbell. Tom is one of the OG rock crawlers at We Rock on, from the East Coast. He uh, hails out of Ohio. We'll talk about that, but we'll also talk about his uh, military career, his career as a veterinarian, and how he got started in off-road and what, what things were like for Tom. So, Tom, thank you very much for coming on board and being on, uh, on Conversations and sharing your life history. Well, I'm I'm glad to be here. I, I appreciate you putting me on. So we'll get into other things. Of course, your uh, racers for Christ and rock crawlers for Christ, and you know the activities that that you have done. I know you did a lot of missionary work in Africa. So I think it's a really interesting life that you've led, and that's what we want to jump into. So let's get started. And where was it that you grew up, born and raised? Uh, Huber Heights, Ohio. Okay. It was it was the largest brick community in the United States. I'm not so sure it's still not the largest brick all brick home community in the United States. And is that in that Dayton area? Yes, sir. It was a suburb of Dayton, it's its own city now. Um it was back during the heyday of uh ranch style homes and um they all looked pretty much alike, so we uh, had a lot of friends and everybody's house was very close to the same house. So everybody was on equal footing, which was kind of nice. It, it wasn't a lot of power plays because of who you were or what you were. Everybody was pretty much equal. Okay. And what was, uh, what was that early life like? Was, uh, I would imagine in a community like that, it was probably a lot of friends, people your own age. Yeah. A lot of classmates. Um, started school in little, I actually went to a one room schoolhouse. Wow. Until uh, third grade. Um, the guy who built all the homes, Huber, Charles Huber, donated uh, every three or four blocks. He had two houses that he built without any partitions. And those were the home, the house, the uh, school rooms that was used for uh, first and second graders. So even though it was this big modern brick community, uh, most of us all went to first and second grade in a, uh, a one-room school building that was our school that we 
we could walk to because it was no more than two or three blocks from any person. It was, it was, that was a nice thing too. And I would imagine with a community like that, if he thought about having buildings for schools like that, then I would imagine there was parks in the area as well. Not to Not me parts to start with. It, it was an uh, all agricultural area. Okay. So there, were, there was lots of woods and a couple of uh, big creeks and one river that went through the area. So not too many parks. Uh, he did have uh, larger areas set aside for schools. Uh, and they eventually put like baseball diamonds on them, but it took several years. He also had, uh, he had laid out the, this plot of land and had, uh, areas that he uh, had reserved the land and would donate it to churches. He had about six areas that was designated for a church to be built. So he kind of looked at everything that was needed for a, a, a suburban uh, lifestyle where you didn't have to go anywhere but stay in your neighborhood. That's, that's kind of cool. I know that uh, you're a few years older than I am. Um, we are, but we're in that, that same 60 to 70 range. You, yes, uh, you grew up in, in an area and in a time when planned communities, especially in more rural settings were, or just outside of large cities was really popular. Um, they were starting to, people were trying to get out of the cities and get into the the more rural areas and then having to commute to the factories and stuff like that. Is that, am I correct in that? Yes. Yes, sir. We, we had a bus line, a bus service that went into Dayton. And uh, as kids, things have changed dramatically. Um, As a eight or nine year old kid, my mom would put me on a bus uh, with a dime to get there and a dime to get back and uh, $2 for a, a movie at one of the movie theaters downtown and a bag of popcorn. So very trusting. Um, When a new movie would come out, she'd load me and sometimes my sister on the bus. We'd go down by ourselves, see the movie and then come back and felt very safe. And was uh, the bus stop was three houses down from where I live. So I grew up in an area that was an old community South of San Francisco I think the house I lived in was built in the twenties or thirties or something like that, but it was, it wasn't like a planned community. It just, it was one that evolved, but you know, the same thing, even though we were really close to, you know, one of the largest cities, there were no worries as a kid about those kind of things, you know, things that are happening now. I think it's really unfortunate that today's kids have to grow up with those kind of worries. Yeah, it, it's sad. They they don't they'll never know what it's like to have freedom that you felt safe using. Right. Yeah, we went. I mean, as a kid, before driving age, you know, early high school or even before high school, I could ride the the bus from down the street from my house into San Francisco, catch the the Munis, and ride the cars like the trolley cars or or even when they built Samtrans and the bus systems and you know going up into the into San Francisco in the 60s being only 7 8 years old was 9 years old was not an issue and 
it's kind of strange nowadays that 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 that's completely gone. Yeah, I, I I feel sorry for the younger people today. They they're experiencing life in a way that I think it, it's kind of hard on them. It 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 pushes them into places they maybe don't feel comfortable with, and they're getting used to it. And of course, they were born into it. Um, I, I I wish they could have experienced what we had when I was seven or eight years old. I would I had a, a golf club tube. Uh, taped to the top rail of my bicycle. I had a scabbard on the side. I would go fishing. I would ride my, um, put on my hunting clothes and ride it over to uh, one of the farmer's fields that let us hunt. Uh, you know, I was eight, nine, 10 years old and going fishing by myself at the big river and going uh, rabbit and, and quail pheasant hunting by myself on a bicycle. And if you tried that today, somebody would pick you up and, and put you somewhere yeah and and arrest your parents you're right yeah it's a shame so talk about about school i knowing that you went through vet school and i would imagine you were scholastic were you athletic as well or you know what what was your what was your thing back then well in, in high school it was it was pretty tough on me in high school uh, i was a year younger than everybody else in my class Okay. And when you're 13 to 15 years old, there's a big difference in size. So I was always uh, on the small side and trying to compete on um, um, baseball was not hard. I played baseball through E-League, which uh, at the, back then it was like you went from E-League to A-League. Okay. And so I, I played ba- baseball till I was about 17 or 18, almost 18 years old. But Football, which was the big thing for our school, I was always small enough that uh, I just I got beat up a lot uh, in practice and always sat on the bench, so I, I didn't stick with that. So it was I, I was a little athletic, but I was just a little small. Uh, scholastically, uh, I had other things on my mind. I did well till I got my driver's license, and then my grades <laughs> went to put. You know? Yeah, I understand. I think that was a lot of us had that. It had just extended our range of freedom, you might say. I've I've always been car crazy. My my daughters are a little leery about me hanging out with my grandsons because they're picking up on it, and now they're wanting to uh, get a get a car even before they got their license and and start working on it or trying to fix one up. So. Um, my one daughter calls it a a, a a disease that I'm spreading around the the grandsons, but <laughs> that's okay. They they're they're learning to do things that aren't going to hurt themselves or anybody else. So true, and it gives them life skills, being able to you know figure things out if they're working on vehicles, um, you know, as opposed to sitting in their room and and you know being online or their face buried in a phone. Well, I am, and you know, my my dad was always a car guy. Um, he owned uh, some um, before he retired. Owned a couple of very large collision centers, and was always into working on cars. But he wasn't big on teaching. So, my first car was a '53 Willie CJ3B, and or '55, and it was like it needed. It was knocking like crazy. It needed a crankshaft, and he goes, "Well." Just I'll get I'll order a crankshaft for you, but 
I don't have time to help you. You got to figure out how to do it. And it was like, well, I figured it out from then on. It's like, well, I can figure out a lot of this stuff. And the, the more you figure out, the more, you know, and it kind of just, it grows sometimes exponentially. And then you end up building, building race cars and uh, off-road rock crawlers and all the things that 16, 17, 18 year old boys do. And it was actually good for me. Exactly. And, you know, and, and we didn't have YouTube, you know, and there oh, was gosh, no, if I had there, a Chilton's manual. Yeah. The Chilton's manual. I mean, was, it, uh, and it covered, it wasn't per car. It was like just for cars in general. And it was like, you know, seven, I still have it. Uh, an old hard copy Chilton's manual. That's probably got eight or 900 pages in it. Yep. <laughs> I started off with, uh, with those Chilton's as well. And same thing. My dad was a car guy. He built, you know, he was in a hot rod club and built hot rods and did drag racing and that kind of thing. So I was able to work with him in the garage. Um, and he could show me things. He would be, okay, well, this is what you're going to do next. So go for it. You know, and it was more that way than just figure it out. Of course, there was other projects that I did that they didn't know about because they didn't approve of like motorcycles and stuff like that, that I just had to figure out on my own. Right. You know, that's, that's how us kids did things. So you grew up in a time where there wasn't the cool bicycles and some of the toys that I felt came along right after, like when I got into high school, I started seeing all these really cool things for the kids to ride that were, you know, I was too big for, or too old for, you know, like the big wheels and things like that. Um, but we did modify our bicycles a bit. Did did you guys do the same thing? You know? Yeah. I, I, I had the bike that it was a three speed English. It was just a three speed bicycle that turned into like an English racer. That's what I rode. I would ride on the, on the roads when I was traveling to go fishing or hunting. But we had a, a a campsite down by the river that you couldn't ride that bike to, and uh, they didn't have the mountain bikes. But you know, we we kind of built our mountain bikes back then, um, um, bigger balloon tires instead of the little skinny tires, and extend the forks in the front so you'd have more ground clearance under your under your your your, your crank on, on your pedals, and it, it was like, well, that's it's kind of like what we've what they turned into mountain bikes, but we were doing it, you know, stripping them down, taking everything off of it that we didn't have to have and, and riding those on the trails. And uh, I wasn't the only one doing it. So there was, there were several of us that had some really junky looking off-road bicycles. Right. So from school, um, what did you do? What did you do after, after high school? Is that when you went straight into the military or did you do yes. something else? Yeah, I, I, I really thought about going in the military. I, I had taken up uh, scuba diving the last oh. two years of high school. And um, I, was I, that a class that they taught or did you, was it something offered in one of the. No, it, it was done through the YMCA. Okay. They no longer teach scuba diving, but um, so uh, I, I went through the YMCA and the instructor there had his own instruction, Patty and Nawi, some of the um, large scuba organizations was just starting to come along, but still there were independent people that were 
uh, teaching diving and um, Bill Kesson, he was the, he actually, if you look at references, he actually did half of the Navy dive tables for decompression. Wow. Um, so he, he was, he was well thought of and everybody that saw his name on a signed off on a certificate or a completion card, they, they took notice and um, uh, I, I learned to ice dive from him. Um, cave dive, uh, I, I was a certified cave diver and uh, I was certified to uh, up to 200 feet. I'd been down to uh, just shy of 200 feet twice. And so um, I, I, I thought I wanted, I always thought the SEAL team, the SEAL team was really getting going back in the early 70s and you know Vietnam was going on and you would hear some things about the the seals being dropped off on the river gunboats and I thought man that would be I would really like to do that but then uh, uh, after my senior year because I was a year younger uh, the lottery that selected who was going to get drafted that year uh, came out and I think it was December and uh, uh, they posted it in the newspaper there wasn't you know the internet where you could look at <laughs> the numbers. So it was in the Dayton Daily News. And went down, looked at my my birth date, and I was my lottery number was fifty seven. And it was like so right away up to sixty was called uh, to, by Selective Service to go get physical exams and, uh, and and prep for being drafted. So I did join the Navy, and my intent was to be a Navy SEAL. And, um, I got drafted in uh, in June of seventy two, and um, they held back sending me to basic training in San Diego to match up with the uh, next BUDS school training that was going on at Coronado Island. So I went active duty on September uh, 6th of 1972 and um, went to boot camp in San Diego. Great. And from Ohio to San Diego, that must have been kind of a lifestyle change. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, I'd been on an airplane once before. And so that was, you know, was kind of, now everybody's used to going on airplanes. And, you know, back then you, you walked out and if you were, if it was raining, you, they handed you an umbrella and they collected it as you got on the airplane and you were outside on the tarmac, walking up the steps to get on, on the airplane for your airplane ride. And that was the second time I'd ever been on a plane. Um, uh, I always enjoy being a little scared. I guess it's the adrenaline that I'm kind of addicted to. So it was, it was very exciting and, and getting in San Diego and seeing what basic training was. So, so we had uh, Steve Nance on, and he went, um, same thing, into to San Diego. But when he was there, it was all foggy. And so for like the first two months, he didn't even know there was mountains there. What was it like that, that first day that you were in San Diego? Well, the the as we got off the bus, they told us we were now called worms. Worms. Yeah. So that was, you know, so, okay. So that's the lowest life on, on the surface of the ground. So we, we were told that that's exactly what we were. The lowest life on the, that was, was on the surface of the earth. And that we don't, don't do anything that might want someone to step on you. So, I mean, we, we were, they, you know, they have to break you before they can build you. That's Correct. what I think is, and it was, um, we were on Worm Island, which was a, uh, a, a small island off the, uh, uh, the Navy base and uh, very small. 
and had a bridge across it. And uh, they posted guards every night to keep and uh, keep the worms on the island. (laughs) Yeah, they told you all stories. There's sharks, and you know they're going to get you. And we could see the Marine Corps boot camp, which was um, just across like a, a finger of water, but not very much. And so after a bit, we started realizing we were pretty lucky because we saw the Marines doing some of the things they had to do. And it's like, well, at least we're not having to do that. But <laughs> So from boot camp and being a worm, I obviously, well, I guess maybe not obviously. Um, were you able to get into the or try to attempt to get into the SEAL program? Yeah, yes, I, I they they do. Uh, um PT test and basic training uh, one month before you're released from basic training to determine if you could go to Bud's Bud school. Okay. So, which is basic underwater demolition school, the, the, the first thing you have to do but before you go into SEAL or UDT. There were two separate groups at that time. And uh, uh, a lot of it was uh, pool work. And uh, they were going to take uh, seven people. And about 40 people showed up for the tryouts. It got down to the last, I don't know, maybe 20. And uh, it was, uh, you had to tread water. And we'd all passed everything up to then. So uh, they were going to take the last seven people in that could survive in the pool treading water would be the ones that would go. <laughs> and uh, we got down and we every uh, two hours you could get a five-minute break. Uh, to go go to the bathroom and get a drink of water. So we I, we did that, and it was uh, uh, actually ended up treading water for just a little over twenty four hours. Wow! It was I don't know. It was kind of it wasn't easy, but I'd been in the water so much um, that it kind of just felt like a natural thing, and uh, I I did get selected and did go to butts training. Um, there were some issues though, uh, on the bus ride from San Diego to Coronado Island, um, they were talking about how it was going to be different than basic training and, uh, what, what we were expected to be able to do and, uh, not being able to wear glasses was one of the requirements. So, uh, my glasses ended up slipping out the window of the bus. <laughs> Because you didn't so, want to get caught wearing glasses. I didn't want to get caught wearing glasses because I had thought I was I was in good shape going. My recruiter, of course, the, the most overpaid liars in the world, told me, <laughs> oh, yeah, no problem. No problem. Just go ahead and sign sign the dotted line there. Um, so after uh, Hell Week is actually uh, almost two weeks long, uh, after surviving that, I now hate the Pacific Ocean. I hate the sand that's in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, it's cold. It's you get as much sand on you from just being in the water as being in, on the beach. So um, uh, when we got done with that, then the classroom work started. Uh, I was having difficulty seeing the. Of course, there was all a lot of uh, chalkboard and uh, slide presentations, and um, I was having a difficult time and. They noticed that and sent me over for an eye exam. Um, uh, the first eye exam, I had memorized the chart, <laughs> just like you see on television. And then this, the, they, and they started doing some different eye exams, and um, they found out that I didn't qualify because my vision wasn't good enough. Ah, uh, that must have been disappointing. 
I was, I, I cried. Yeah, um, I can imagine. But they, uh, uh, God worked everything out for me. They, uh, because I had gotten that to that point, uh, I, they guaranteed I could get whatever job in the Navy that I wanted. Out of the 400 some um, specialties in the Navy, I, I could pick whatever I wanted and they would get me to that school and I would be that for my, the rest of my enlistment. Well, that's and nice. I, I, I looked through and, and uh, uh, I was originally told by a personnelman that he was going to make sure I got put on a, a boat chipping paint off the side and would never see anything but that. That Be- kind of really, was that, why was that was why did he say that? I, he I just I guess he was he was on you know over at Cornell Island, but he wasn't a seal. Uh, he just I he had a bad attitude, I guess, which unfortunately brought out my bad attitude. Right. And uh, he uh, the the guarantee that they placed in my two hundred one follower my uh, uh, service record, he just ripped it out, tore it up, and threw it in the trash can. Wow. And at that point, I stood up, he stood up, I hit him in the face, and in five minutes, I was under arrest. So uh, I, they they finagled around, and I still, I was able to get the job uh, that I picked, and I, I looked through the through the book, the 400-some specialties, and, and picked one called Trade of Men, uh, trade uh, where you worked on flight simulators and submarine simulators. And uh, I picked that one, and it was uh, uh, I got to flight simulators, so it was all shore duty, and uh, spent four years in Virginia Beach, Virginia. It was you know, some of the most fun times I've ever had. So, striking the he was a non-com then. Yes, yeah, he was second class, so he was okay. a E five. So it wasn't as bad as is hitting a commissioned officer, I guess. Right. Or, or at least you were able to prove your point so that it didn't hang over your head. Right. So, you know, even at the, even after being dismissed, uh, being through the first part of Bud's training was high, highly thought of. So it gave you some clout that probably the average seaman did not have. Okay. Which was what saved me from doing getting anything bad done to me so well that's that's fortunate enough but i can understand that you know it's people push and push and push and uh you know they sometimes they push you to your limits and when we're young we have more of a tendency to uh to try to prove our point (laughs) which obviously you must have done (laughs) yeah young and dumb and lack of self-control which, yeah, I think most people learn that as they get older. I don't think you're born with it. No, you're not. No, you're not. Especially if you're an adrenaline junkie. You know, if you like the adrenaline, it's it's more likely to come out. I think if you're if you don't particularly like the adrenaline or you know that overcoming that fear or whatever that uh, those those same tendencies probably don't happen as often. Yeah, you know, adrenaline is supposedly the the most addictive drug that you can ever have in your body. Right. Well, you know, that's what I've always said is every time somebody posts something on social media or asks what it is, tell us what you do, but do it badly or don't, you know, come right out and say it. I always tell people I sell them back their adrenaline. Yes. (laughs) 
I, I think you do. <laughs> so you're, you're stateside in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and obviously you must have liked um, the East Coast, the Eastern Ocean, the, the Atlantic, better than the Pacific? Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that when, when, when they came up with duty stations, it was like, uh, I do not want any Westpac. Or the, the Pacific side is like I, I cannot stand that body water. I've visited my some of my wife's family members uh, in Los Angeles and San Diego, and I don't even go to the beach and walk the beach. <laughs> and it was all from that buds training, that going through buds. Yeah, huh? I mean it's like you 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 can watch the the, the television shows and they're pretty accurate, but uh, it's like it is. Misery for uh, you slept uh, one hour a day, 23 hours of misery. Wow. And the goal was what kept keeps you driving on. And that probably, you know, all that uh, adrenaline and all that pushing and hating the uh, Pacific Ocean. Uh, when that guy tore my guarantee up, it was like that pushed me over the edge. So, I, you know, it, I, it got me addicted to adrenaline. Uh, I've been addicted to drill a long time, I guess, but uh, it's like that was the the most that ended up being the second most adrenaline I've ever had. So it's okay. I enjoy it. <laughs> I, that's since I'm not competing, I I miss that part uh, of being able to get uh, a little excitement and adrenaline going. It, it's it's very hard to do sometimes to to see it and not be able to touch it you know you almost touch it right so let's talk about virginia beach um your your duty time there you said you were on simulators flight simulators yes sir i was i was on a a6 intruder simulator oh okay and we operated and maintained it so we had a lot of new uh pilots come through being assigned to the a6 and uh, in order to part of the training for us to be skilled on the A6 simulator, we had to go fly a real A6, uh, uh, one that's got dual controls, both both sides. And um, usually one the left side is for the pilot, and the right side was for the bomb and their navigator. <clears throat> so we we had to go through the same uh, two week flight school at Virginia Beach as the um, new pilots on A6 did. So that was another adrenaline thing going on. Um, so we, uh, after the first three or four days on all the paperwork, then we started actually going out to the aircraft. And so I, I, I got to do that. I got to do so. I have been very blessed. I've been able to do so many things that have been like dreams or goals of mine. That I just, uh, you know, I've pretty well, I almost don't have a bucket list anymore. I uh, tell everybody I don't believe in a bucket list. I believe in a life list. Yeah. But I'm also the same guy that thinks, you know, your your glass is half full, you know, not half empty. So. Yeah, I, 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 try, to, I try to be the optimist. Sometimes it's really hard. Yes, that's true. Yeah, it can be. So it was it was real exciting, and then it was real pleasure pleasurable. Um, I ended up being on a, a night shift, 
and we, uh, I'd get up every morning, sometimes with somebody, one of the other guys, or, and we'd um, drive over to the beach, and we would surf fish all day long, and then we would come back, get cleaned up, and go to work. Nice. It was it was just like almost like being on vacation with a part time job. <laughs> and uh, job security. Yeah, job security. Um, my my first uh, three two months, two and a half months of paychecks in the Navy. Uh, I I finally broke even. I owed them money for my uniforms and my haircuts and. That all that stuff they you know, they don't give it to you like they do the other branches. You have to pay for it. Wow! And it comes out of your paycheck. So it was like two and a two and a half months before I was at a break even point, and then my checks were one hundred and sixty nine dollars every two weeks. Nowadays, that doesn't go very far. No, back then in Virginia Beach, it didn't go very far either. Yeah, I would imagine. Was, you know, trying to because high cost of living. Um. I, I, I unfortunately got in with a group at the auto shop garage or fortunate. I don't know whether it's fortunate or unfortunate. The auto shop garage, you could go over and for uh, $5 a month, you could rent a bay with a tool, with a huge toolbox and had a uh, chain link uh, around them. So you could lock your, your, uh, all your parts and your, your car up so no one else could get to it. So it was, uh, I I don't I think my my grandsons know this. I don't really publicly talk to them too much about it. We had a street racing club like, and so the it was always the sailors versus the civilians. And we'd go out cruising the streets, and uh, back then uh, you you bet on your race, and we we always seemed to be able to make more money than we spent keeping our junk together. So let's, let's talk about the, the evolution of vehicles. That first one you had, you said you had a, a, a Willis flat vent or a flat fender, but a three B. Yep. What, what came after that? And when was it? Well, so I bought that one when I was 14. Okay. And, uh, and drove it all the back, the back stuff at, uh, around our house until I was uh, 16. Um, and replaced the crankshaft in it and then sold it. Um, the next car I had was a, uh, I built a dune buggy, fiberglass dune buggy. Okay. And um, there was a, a, a mechanic that was selling dune buggy bodies. He was a mechanic at the Porsche dealership in downtown Dayton. So he, well, I got to know him and I built this fiberglass, orange metal flake fiberglass dune buggy. And, um, he helped me put together a uh, about a 200 horsepower Volkswagen motor for it, and uh, so I stayed busy staying in trouble with that on the roads. I would imagine so. Uh, after I eventually sold that and built a sand rail, uh, and and took the engine out of the dune buggy and put over in the sand rail and go up to um, uh, Silver Lake in Michigan, and they had sand drags. So I did that for uh, one summer uh, and we'd, we'd sand drag once a month. They had a sand drag. We'd go up there and, um, you know, I had the big paddles on it and uh, 200 horsepower and, and, you know, you're, you're steering the cutting brakes. You know, back then it was just two little levers that hooked onto your emergency brake. Yep. 
and you know you what you were so light in the front you only could steer with by braking so um i, I got kind of i i look back and i go well I was using cutting brakes back in 1970. Exactly. <laughs> so when you had the the fiberglass Volkswagen and then the Sandrail, did you? What was your commute vehicle? Uh, I I had a 1967 Ford GTA. Okay. 390 double pumper Holley and automatic. I kind of got in trouble with that a few times too, but. Uh, it was faster. Uh, it didn't stand out as as much as the as the fiberglass buggy, so I didn't get as many looks by the police. The although the the police in our town of Huber Heights knew me well, so <laughs> I, I always left our community as fast as I could, so that I, anything I did wouldn't be seen by them. But um, I that was a, it, and then. Uh, Eventually, I uh, ended up, uh, I think I had one more car. Uh, I had a 68 Coronet RT with a 440 Magnum, dual quads, and that by far was the fastest vehicle I've ever owned in my life. Right. Yep. Those late those late 60s Mopar, was, they were beasts. They, they, were, they were bad cars. The speedometer went to 150, and it would peg the speedometer. <laughs> it, it wasn't staying on the road real, real well at 150. You needed more than a little more than one lane to keep it going straight. It's like again that d- adrenaline. Yeah, yeah, getting the drilling going. It's like oh, I've I've always kind of had that problem. And Did it have seatbelts? Uh, yeah, but we never wore them. Right. You know that was. That was I. I think they had just started making them uh, uh, standard equipment bef- just about that time or a little before. Because I I remember my dad when he would go buy a new car, he wouldn't take the seat belts out of the plastic bags because uh, they were an option, and he would go and get that plastic waffle looking seat covers put on. So when he got ready to trade it in or sell it, it would look brand new. So, uh, I I didn't wear a seatbelt. I don't think I wore a seatbelt except for racing up in Michigan. Gosh, until I uh, got out of the Navy, to be honest with you. Hmm. I still have a problem putting my seatbelt on. Yeah, I I don't have any issues putting the seatbelt on anymore. No, not after. Well, we'll get to that here. We'll get to that. So then... You uh you had the the Ford GT or the Dodge um you had the Ford and then you had the Dodge, but you truly are at heart a Ford guy is what I I always thought yeah and yeah, uh, I'm a Ford so My when dad you was a Ford guy okay that makes sense when you were in Virginia Beach what vehicle were you driving then um I had a Pinto Runabout there you go oh. that's yeah. a lady killer right there. Yeah, it's a ladies' killer. <laughs> oh wow, Pinto Runabout, really? That's awesome. Yeah. I I bought it. It was uh, I actually bought two at the uh, local wrecking yard, and uh, one was hitting the back, one was hitting the front, and that was back when it wasn't too legally hard to cut one in half and put it back together again without 
jumping through a million hoops. So yep. it is exactly two cars. And I, I drove that. And, uh, got We got buried and we still drove it. So that was uh, sticking with a Ford. It wasn't fast at all, but um, it was sportier than a, some of the other big sedans that was running around. Right. So you just mentioned married. Where did you meet your wife? Uh, I, I met her at a church youth group party one night. And I, I thought she was her sister. So I thought she was about my age. And uh, started talking and and still thought she was my age. And so we started dating and I found out she was two years younger than me. Oh. Um, actually, almost three years younger than me. But so I, I fell in love with her and then we, um, we dated until I got drafted. And then halfway through my four-year enlistment, um, she turned 18 and we got married. Okay, so she she followed you through your military career then. Yep, she's followed me through all my military career. She she enjoyed the Virginia Beach lifestyle too because after I was married, then I wouldn't go with anybody else. We would go to the beach and I'd fish, and she would lay on the lay on a towel on the beach and soak up some sun. And it really and truly was. We had almost two years of like a honeymoon. It was very nice. Excellent. So then what happened after Virginia Beach? Well, what, I, I ended up going back home and working on my dad's auto collision center. Um, and uh, didn't enjoy it at all. You know, problems with my brother and my dad, just, you know, family issues and you know, tension from that. It was very unenjoyable. Okay. So I decided I would go back to college. Um, and back when I was a... 10-year-old, I was mowing grass for the veterinarian that we only had one veterinarian in Huber Heights. And I was, uh, at 10 years of age, I, I started mowing his grass somehow and progressed on along. And um, through high school, I, I would work there, you know, part-time after school and um, got to where I was doing quite a few things. That, and I really enjoyed that. So then when things didn't work out at my dad's shop, I, I decided I'd go back to college. And, um, try to be a veterinarian. Okay. Always wondered how that, how that transitioned. That's uh yeah. Some people say it doesn't really fit my personality sometimes, but, um, ultimately it, it did. I, I enjoy my, I enjoy my profession and uh, I carried it on through my military career. I, I've been in the military for 27 years before I retired in 96. So, right. Um, so, Talk about that. You 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 were you did four years in the Navy. Then you went to school. You came home. You went to you know worked with your dad and and your brother, and then decided to go to veterinarian school. And then after that, is that when you went back into the military, or did you start your career your vet career then? Um, I, I I stayed in the military uh, in an active reserve status. Okay. For about a year and a half, uh, and I got accepted to veterinary college. Um, I, I got accepted after two years, which I don't think you can do that anymore. But uh, I worked really hard the first two, the first six quarters, and got every one of the prerequisites done in order to apply for veterinary school. So 
I applied and I got in. But um, we, uh, as soon as I knew I was being accepted to veterinary school, I went back in the uh, Army National Guard, um, uh, part-time active duty, and stayed in there until I graduated veterinary, veterinary school. So uh, uh, I was an enlisted person. Uh, I was a tank turret repairman. That's a slayer, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so so it, it didn't seem like it was going to be much fun, but um, if you've ever, if you know anything about um, military armor, uh, an M88 is a tank recovery vehicle. Right. Uh, it, it's got the most powerful winch that is mobile that the, at that time that the Army owned. I think it was an 80,000-pound winch. And this thing has a big grater blade on the front that you bury. You you pull you pull up and you drop it down the ground, and then you, as you put tension on the cable, it actually starts digging deeper and deeper into the ground, so you can actually drag these uh, tanks that are damaged or or stuck, uh, and and get them back to where they can be trailered back to a repair facility. So I got licensed to drive that, and it's like every time we go on a summer camp. Two week summer camp. I was driving the M eighty eight. Yeah, well, like that was a tremendous, like not the ultimate off road, but um, we I got to see a lot of fun, fun, interesting things recovering some of these other pieces of armor. How big were the cables on a, a winch that size? Oh my gosh, I I think they were inch and a half cables. Wow. Did I mean, were you was, ever around we, one when it snapped? No, it never snapped okay. one. Good. No, I mean, it, when it's with it extended, it's all you can do to pick it up in the middle and and move it any direction. Even just you, just picking it up is almost more than one one person can do. It's so heavy. Wow. So then, did you stay in the reserves the rest of your career, or did you go back to? Did you go back yeah, to full time service? I, I stayed the National Guard until uh, I graduated and then was commissioned into the Army Reserve. Okay. And then spent the last of my career till 96 in the Army Reserve. We, um, uh, I, I was also a microbiologist by then. So I was a veterinary microbiologist, which there was a group, uh, uh, three veterinary laboratories that uh, would would detect biological and chemical weapon use in um, domesticated animals and wildlife. There was only three in the world, and wow. I was the commander of one of them, which uh, it's not as pre- it's only a captain's position, so it's not as prestigious as you think. But uh, since there were so few of us, anytime there was a conflict anywhere in the world, I would be put on alert standby. Because it was going to, you know, it was a 33% chance that my unit would be called up to go support the uh, the mission. So um, it seems like at least once every two years, we were headed for the emergency operations center getting data. And every day I'd have to drive to Columbus to, to pick up the latest information. And um, so it was, I, I kind of, had a drilling going about every six to 12 months and some, some kind of a drilling going on, going on a mission. So uh, it was kind of, it was exciting, even though it was a reserve position. Right. 
because it's a, a specialty. If there yeah, was only three was, units that were dealing with that, and that was going in and detecting if the the other side, the combatants, were were using biological, you know, weapons against our troops, right? Yes, sir. Okay. You know, when 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 Syria um, used chemicals on their uh, their civilians that first time years ago, uh, it was actually one of our three labs that went in and detected it in the animals in the villages. It could, we could, we had the ability to detect it uh, easier uh, than detect it in humans because uh, particularly Muslims is once they're dead, they've only got a certain amount of time to clean them and, and wash them and dress them for burial. So the, it, it made it almost impossible for us to detect it in the people so they used uh, the livestock and the dead birds, anything they would find in the village to come up with what exact chemical was used. So, hmm. And we did get my unit got called up for Desert Storm. That was an exciting time, too. Yeah, that was uh, that was kind of a crazy time. Yeah, it was it was uh, uh, our army and our politicians have changed since then. Because I, I, you know, personally, I can tell you, we, we, we were not being lied to. We were, they were uh, wanting to get the mission completed and didn't have any political agendas that prevented the military from in the mission, which, you know, kind of look at the Desert Storm. It's the shortest, largest battle or war that the United States has ever fought. And we, we did a, went in fast and, and quick and clean and now the same kind of missions go on for four to ten years it's like i don't understand it myself to be honest with you yeah i'm uh i'm not going to broach that subject because i probably shouldn't <laughs> but i yeah, agree it with bothers you me too so i i, I can't hold, I, I get on my soapbox and can't get off so, <laughs> so then uh you were working as a vet there in 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 Huber Heights still, or outside? No, of... I'd, I'd moved to when I graduated. I moved to a town called Springfield. Okay, and that's where I still have my practice today. And you're in, in your place. office right now, right? No, I'm I'm home for lunch right okay. now. You're home for lunch I, right now. Okay. I always take a longer lunch since Perfect. I've gotten uh, older, a little more beat up. I I try to take a two or three hour lunch so I can really you know, kick back and get my feet up and take it easy for a longer time. Perfect. So then when did, when through this, all this, you know, with the, the active reserve and, and the being a veterinarian, did you get back into motorsports? Well, you know, in, in, in Virginia beach, my my wife was dead set against me doing street racing anymore, which <laughs> I, I I I lost my driver's license so many times it's ridiculous. But so we uh, we started camping with a, another couple in the military, and one of the trails that we camped off of was over in Virginia, and at the end of the road before you get to the it's a gravel road up and then it just stops and then the trail starts. At the end of that road was this old little house with about 25 Jeeps parked around it. And, you know, back in, I was probably in sixth grade 
when Walker Evans was really hot on the Baja Trail, right? Right. He was him. He and Dodge were like hooked, hooked hip to hip, and and he was doing great off road. And I'd always, you know, we'd get one of the off road magazines every month, and there'd be something there about desert racing and Walker Evans, and and I I idolized Walker Evans back then, drew pictures of his Dodge pickup truck, and um, so. Uh, I, I, I've always liked four wheel driving off road and we, uh, we passed this guy's house and on the way home, we stopped and I go, you got any of these Jeeps for sale? He says, they're all for sale and looked and there was a little blue flat fendered 46, um, with a homemade aluminum hard top on it. And uh, I worked to deal with them for 400 bucks to buy it. Now, of course, a 46 Willys back in 1974 was not nearly as old as people think of, you know, the old CJs now. Right. But um, so I got it and, and got it home and I still had my $5 a month slot over at the hobby shop garage. And uh, I took it over there and bought an engine out of a Buick Special, a little V6, 225, and used a Novak conversion and put a 225 in it. And um, my first race in it was in greensboro north carolina uh out on the power tra- power line trails and started obstacle course racing and uh it was about 75 and raced 75 and uh most of 76 and so i mean i, I i'm hooked you know i I'm stuck. I can't get out of this. I I love doing it. So and your wife was okay with you being. She was okay pavement. with that because I wasn't breaking the law. Right. <laughs> I wasn't going to go to jail on her. You know. <laughs> so so we we went out and and I had a race every month. So we raced every month from April through September and had a great time. And then from there, you I know you've been you've been racing and rock crawling. Did you ever get to meet Walker Evans? Yes, at Hannibal when they had all the pros from the West Coast. Yep, um, when we did our national our our nationals yep. there. Yep. Yep. I got to meet Walker there, you know, and I'm not I, I you know, I kinda wish I got a um autograph from him, but it's like I didn't want to you know, he was busy. He was doing stuff. I I was a little kind of a little bit in awe to be honest with you. Right. It's like I, I don't have Walker Evans autograph and Maybe if I ever see him again, I'm going to ask him for one. Just, just for the heck of it. But. I'm fortunate. Um, I get to see him every year at the uh, Off-Road Hall of Fame dinner. And, um, you know, he's part of the Off-Road Hall of Fame, of course, as an inductee. And at C- just before SEMA, they have the induction dinners and the big ceremony and everything. And he's he and Phyllis are always there, and it's it's really it's really good to see him every year. You know, it's, uh, I'll see what I can do for you this year. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll see what I can do. So that's cool. The, no, it was very sad when he quit making, uh, um, uh, air shocks. Right. I, I love, I love Walker Evans air shocks. I don't know why, but probably because just the relationship I had him with him through the magazines, back when I was in sixth grade. So, but I like this air shocks. I'm sad that I can't purchase them anymore. <laughs> so after you were racing down there in North Carolina, doing the power line racing in the Jeep, 
with an old odd fire V6 Buick. I love those motors. You, uh, do you, is that the flat fender you still have? No, okay. I, I ended up selling it I, when I was going through college. I ended up selling it. Probably one of the biggest mistakes I ever made. Cause it had a, I put a Saturn overdrive on it. Oh, wow. It was really a nice, a nice old Jeep to, to, to just uh, drive on the street because it would it would do 65 miles an hour unlike most of them and so you could 55 was the speed limit i think but we but we ended up selling that just to make ends meet understood partly partly through my my college uh before i got into veterinary college we had our first child so that put an extra little bit of strain on it so kind of i had to quit doing some things and sell some things so uh, I kind of, my, I, my racing hiatus started then. And how long did that racing hiatus last? Uh, till, uh, 2001. Okay. Um, or it was two, 2000, uh, Tennessee off-road. Back then there wasn't that many off-road builders and companies around. Right. Um, not like today. I mean, it's like things have changed so much in, in four-wheel drive and, off-roading since then i mean back then no one had a winch you had to come along you had to bolt on the wheel uh, rope rollers that you would sometimes use but it was like so i saw tennessee off-road was having the tennessee off-road challenge that's a was a three-day event friday saturday sunday uh, it was you and your uh, co-driver navigator uh, you could have no outside help um, you had to bring everything that you were going to use for those three days to the event site, uh, which was a, 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 a chain link storage area that they had borrowed or rented. So you were absolutely secluded from all, all other help other than the other competitors. Okay. And that was, so we did that for the three days. We, we had, um, uh, uh, maps with grid coordinates and, you know, finding locations and, there weren't any digital cameras, so we were using those Polaroid cameras that took a picture of you and automatically developed it. That's what you stapled to the page of where you were at, mimicking the picture they had there. So it was very hard. There was a off-road rally part of it and a road rally part of it. Um, uh, there was a mud pit, and there was a uh, uh, a two-pole bridge exercise where you had to get across this ravine they or this ditch they had cut and there was no way you could drive down in and back out again it was probably eight feet deep and straight sidewalls so they uh you had to drive over the telephone poles uh they had a kayak portion of it uh, and a shooting portion of it okay so three days and it was like you were busy for i mean you worked hard for three days but that was probably the most just fun not necessarily adrenaline but fun that we, I've had off-roading. That was, uh, I, I would, I would do that again if I could. We did that two years in a row. And if anybody's ever done it or heard about it, uh, just to complete the three days and still be up and running for the last uh, uh, part of the event, that was kind of something back then because half of everybody would, would be done after the first 24 hours. And then half of that half, so probably less than half would would be able to complete the event so we we completed the event both both years 
and then they uh, then they stop having it for some reason. Hmm. What did you compete in? What did you have? I, I still have it. It's an '84 Bronco II uh, with a four liter, uh, 8.8 rear and a 35 TTB front. Uh, it's it's tubbed in the back. It runs 36s with beadlocks, advanced adapters, world class um, T5 as the low first gear right and uh, i had atlas on it so we um we competed with that and uh it it really did best about everything i wanted it to do uh, a lot of people make fun of the ttbs but i i still i still have two of them i have that and a, a ranger that i competed in the uh bad badlands in indiana had a uh a race for two years, I, I competed it over there, but so that was that was my first getting back in the competition. And who was your who was your partner in those? I, I had two different ones. One was my oldest daughter's boyfriend, okay. and another one was a person from from our club. I had a four wheel drive club that I was in was for Fords only with TTBs. Okay. So, and I, I guess you know losers like to stick together, but we. Uh, <laughs> And somewhere in the middle there, I guess just before we put the Atlas in, we took it and competed uh, at a uh, uh, an event in Canfield, Ohio, um, and had a rock calling event. I'm trying to think of the guy's name who put it on. Um, his last name gives us an H. He had done a lot of off road events. I can't remember. Bob Hazel. Name. Bob Hazel. Bob Hazel put on a rock calling event. And uh, it was like the first time I'd ever been on, and they had pretty good sized rocks for just being brought in with dump trucks. But so uh, I'm, I'm before the Atlas, and I've got the, the standard transmission in it. And we get uh, through the first heat, the second heat, and the third heat. Um, the clones all got placed where they were pretty tough. And uh, I got hung up halfway through, and my clutch caught on fire. Oh, wow. I've never seen one catch on fire before, but it was like flames shooting out the vent. And uh, when we got it taken apart, there was nothing but burnt metal. All the um, asbestos was gone. So <laughs> long story short, we still qualified. We were in like fourth place because of the distance we went um, for the uh, the finals the next day. And we couldn't do it because we couldn't. We couldn't get a, a clutch that night to put in it. Uh, it was a special clutch. And so I, I, I couldn't get the clutch, and that finished us there. And then uh, uh, the next time they had the uh, Indianapolis four-wheel drive jamboree, they had a rock crawling event. That was um, in 2001 or 2002. I can't recall. But um, so it was. this was uh, being filmed. Uh, and we were on television. Our segment was on television for oh, two years after we did it. We took first place in a TTB uh, old, uh, it was Ford Explorer parts. Um, and we took first place in the rock call at that, at that event. And uh, that was what that, uh, that sensed it for me. I was stuck on rock crawling. That's awesome. I remember you running a portal rig. Yep, we uh, we ran that rig for quite a while, and decided to uh, 
we've been seeing some portals using uh, Hummer outers. Um, and so we hooked up with the guy who was making the C's and we, we bought the C's and we converted that buggy, which was a two seat buggy um, over to portals. And we ran it for uh, a couple of years. Did you have problems breaking those portal axles? Because I know a couple of guys on the West Coast were running them too. Ron Schneider had a a buggy that he had built with portals, and it seemed like every time he'd stuff it in a rock or an undercut, um, before he could get it out of there, it would blow up. Did you have those yeah. problems? Yeah, our, our portals all stayed together. Okay. We had a huge problem with axles. Everybody that at that time who advertised they'd made special unbreakable axles. I contacted them, gave them all the dimensions, and um, I bet you I have at least eight different manufacturers of broken axles in my shop today. I, I didn't label whose was whose. I wish I would have now, just for posterity's sake. But um, we we suffered with that, and we could change. I always took a two of each axle. Um, the the rears were identical and the fronts were of course different but we well, I took two of uh, two back axles and two each of the front axles with me each event because I knew I was going to break at least one wow and uh, my son-in-law was my spotter at the time and from the time that we hit our trailer till the time we were headed back to a course was less than 12 minutes for every axle wow we we we'd gotten so good at replacing at changing these axles it was like he knew what tools he needed to be using where, and I knew, and like we would get on both working at the same time, and one axle out, another axle in, and back on course. It was. I don't. I I'm not sure if that is, if that's a good thing or a bad thing that you got it down to that quick. I know that if it broke, that's a good thing to be able to do it in 12 minutes. But if you had that much experience to get it down to 12 minutes, that probably was a bad thing. Oh, I, I, I've, I've got at least 30 axles in my shop. Wow. Some of them were broken at events. Some were broken uh, trail riding or practicing. So um, we eventually, uh, a plug for RCV performance. I talked to him and he says, I can make an axle that won't break. And I said, well, okay, send me, send me. Two, send me a total of uh, three rears and two each of the fronts. He goes, I don't need two. And I argued with him. I go, yeah, you do. I, I break them all the time. He goes, you won't break these. Well, that two-seat buggy I sold about six years ago after four years of competition still had the same axles in it. Wow. The buggy that I had na- have now, I kind of lose track of time. I don't know how many years I uh, major rock the single seat front engine, big, tall thing. Right. Uh, I know I had three or four years on it. And then my last buggy here, computer and engine problems. Uh, I've got a a lot of starts, but no finishes. But uh, I just took the axles out um, probably a little over four years ago to look at them, and they were still in good shapes, you know, no twister. So the uh, RCB performance did they they said they could do it and they did it and so that's that's the axles that we still have in our buggy now. Excellent. As you 
came up in the in buggies and you went you know from the two seater to the single seat that and I remember those engine management problems you were having and then once we found out what once you found out what it was it was it seemed so simple but it wasn't at the time you've uh you're not able to compete now and I find that a real shame and wish that you could uh, well I you know and uh, as you get older, you always think you can do more things than you can really do. Right. Uh, but uh, honestly, the the, the last uh, 12 months, I've improved so much that uh, I'm really I'm really struggling with. Uh, I, I think I'm going to come back in some fashion or another uh, by next spring. OK, that's that's my goal. It, it, does your wife know this? Yes, and she keeps saying no. I'm not. I keep saying, <laughs> yes, I. I go. It's just walking around on the courses. Is you're more apt to get really hurt than in, in, in the buggy. I mean, the buggy's a great. This I've been in some big hits with this buggy, and um, I feel very comfortable and safe in it. The, the worst I've ever been hurt is I broke a finger at the nationals the last time I competed. Okay. We, we rolled over, and somehow I got my finger twisted uh, behind the steering wheel or, and, and broke a finger. Like, so it's like, well, that's, I can tolerate a broken finger. <laughs> and you got to tell her, Hey, it's legal. Yes. I'm not going to get arrested. Yep. <laughs> and she's probably still going to argue with you though. <laughs> yeah. But I think I, I, she's kind of seeing, I, I, of course, you know, I, I've lost a tremendous amount of weight since, January 1st and I'm feeling really I feel great um, so and she sees that I feel really well and doing so many more things than I used to be able to do um, over the last four years or so it's been kind of hit or miss what I could do and what I couldn't do but I'm I'm really able to do a lot of things so my goal is to next spring to be back in it in one fashion or another okay that's awesome Let's uh, let's shoot for something like uh, Sportsman C or Mod Stock or something like that. Yeah, that's what we're we're fighting with. What we're going to do. My one grandson wants to be part of it, and I, I just told him flat says I, I know I can probably drive the, the vehicles, but I cannot spot. I'll end up falling off a rock and being careflight at home. So I, I don't want to do that. Right. So we're we're fighting with. We got this forty six Willys that we're. Um, we've got other willies and, and we'd started preparing it for mod stock and, uh, we're about halfway there. And I really, uh, now we're trying to decide whether sportsman's the way to go or mod stock and suspension. And so I, 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 I this past weekend at, at your event, I, I watched uh, quite a bit of the, the sportsman sees to see what, what they had and and uh what kind of what their obstacles actually look like and you know as you know sitting on the ground it always looks easier than when you're on the on the rocks yeah that's true and it's uh, it although it, it was you know, that's a pretty good place for uh, a c-class buggy because it's good work a truck jeep it, it's kind of it's challenging yes so while i looked at that thought well you know um but not death defying right and so, and like most, you know, people that don't 
don't do it yet. They think, oh, all I got to do is build this vehicle and then go compete. Well, the maintenance on on the more uh, the higher class vehicles, I have found to be, it's pretty time consuming. I think more so than the C class or the mod stock. So I agree. Uh, I think I could physically and time wise do that easier than being back in the unlimited. Although uh, I, I sure like the unlimited lines and competing with the other unlimited guys, but we'll, we'll see what I can do. Excellent. Excellent. And do you mind touching a little bit on, on why, you know, you haven't been able to, to do, um, and talk about the wreck? Yeah, okay. I don't mind. All right. Um, uh, February 15th of 2017, um, we were uh, going through a green light at a, at a, at a stoplight and a uh, full-size Lexus SUV hits us in the side at 55, a little over 55 miles an hour. It hit my side. I was the passenger and uh, uh, spun us. And then we hit a house. So um, my wife was uh, careful. She had a broken leg and uh, some brain bleeds. Uh, I was conscious through the whole thing. I, I, I was um, able to, to talk to them from the beginning. Um, I was, uh, my side of the car was uh, over 12 inches narrower than it was to start with. I was stuck between the door and the, the center console. We, um, I, I, every time I would try to move, I would hear a lot of bone cracking. As a veterinarian, I knew I was I was pretty hurt. Um, shortness of breath and just you know, a little shocky. Uh, my legs were were bent sideways between the front cowl and the uh, uh, the center of the car. So I I, I was cut out of the car. Um, um, it took them 25 minutes to cut the side of the car out. I've got pictures of it and people that. Um, uh, EMTs and uh, they look at it and go, you're lucky you're here. And I am lucky. God God kept me alive for a reason. Um, I ended up uh, uh, being hel- helicoptered to a level one trauma center. I uh, have titanium plates uh, on the ribs of my right side. Uh, I had two broken legs. Um, I had a damaged bladder. My right arm was semi-paralyzed for uh, eight days. Uh, I was confined to a wheelchair for eight months uh, and then to a, uh, a walker. We, um, I was out of work for uh, 10 months. We um, rehab and it, it's, it's uh, uh, when I first got to rehab uh, as a veterinarian, I'm also a surgeon. I do my own surgeries. And uh, during part of the tying your shoes episode at rehab, uh, I couldn't figure out how to tie a knot. It was like I could do the first throw of an overhand knot, and then to finish the knot off, I could, I could not mentally come up with a way to finish the knot off. And uh, of all the injuries that I've had uh, with associated with that, that was probably the scariest point. Is when I, I realized I couldn't figure out how to tie a knot. And I thought, well. Kind of like, well, I think my career might be over. 
but with lots of rehab and special games that they designed for me to play and um, lots of help from family. Uh, I had people stay with me 24 seven in the hospital. Uh, I, I, I was revived twice and had uh, chest tubes placed in twice. Uh, and so at this point, uh, I can tell you, I feel better than just before the accident. Wow. That's, that is good to hear that, you know, you're, you've, uh, you've made that recovery and then with your weight loss, um, and your, your physical activities that you're, that you feel in better shape than what you did. That's, that's good to hear. Yeah. I'm, I'm so thankful and, and, uh, I pray every day thanking God that, he, he let me get to this point, you know, living and dying for, for a Christian living and dying doesn't mean as much as, as other things being permanently disabled is much worse than dying. And so uh, God's allowed me to get back to where I can do things. Uh, I don't climb trees anymore to take the tops out of them. I don't get on the roof to clean the gutters out anymore. Um, but uh, I'm pretty much doing almost everything else that, uh, I used to do and feel pretty comfortable doing it. Well, good. So let's talk about the Racers for Christ program. Yeah. So back when we were competing at um, Jellicoe, Tennessee, it was like every other month. Um, and uh, I, we would, I would go, and my son-in-law would go with me. So neither one of us went to church that Sunday because we were there and uh, I heard about Racers for Christ, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could get them to send a chaplain to have a Sunday service for us every Sunday, or that we during the for the uh, every Sunday of the event, um, so that people who go to church wouldn't have to miss church. They'd be able to just do it like the cowboy churches do at the rodeos, where you you go and you got church right there. And I thought, well, that'd be great. Let's I'm going to contact them. So I contacted them and they said, we'll get our regional chaplain, get back with you. Well, he wants to set up an appointment at my house with me. So I set it up. I thought he was going to talk about the schedule and, you know, what uh, could they, you know, what time they could send a chaplain uh, You were being over. drafted. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden he gets there and says, well, we got the perfect guy for the job. After we talked for a while, he goes, well, who is that? He goes, you, would you consider being a chaplain for the RFC? And I said, I don't know. I, I sure wasn't prepared to hear that. <laughs> I thought we were setting up a schedule for you guys to send somebody. We said, well, we're, we're trying to, we're, we'd like to send you if you'd be willing to go through all the, the questionnaires and, the, and be interviewed by some other the chaplains. And um, so I said, well, give me a month. I want to talk to my wife. I want to pray about this and, and see what, what God has planned out for me. And he said, um, well, you know, this may get to the point where you couldn't compete anymore. And I said, well, if if God put it in a situation where uh, uh, my duties as an RFC chaplain would prevent me from being a competitor, uh, I would more willing sacrifice and not do that. Well, so I, I, I guess everybody kind of liked me, so they uh, uh, allowed me to sign on as a chaplain and, and go through all the study guides and so uh, I ended up being a, a chaplain for RFC, and um, even up until the very end, I, I was still able to be a chaplain and compete. And uh, I still think God wants me to be there as a chaplain. Uh, now, maybe a competitor too, but 
chaplain number one, then competitor. Um, I, I, I love everybody that's associated with our, our rock crawling group, uh, even the ones I don't know. It's just I, I know how I, we're, we're kindred spirits. So I, 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 I want to be there for them and be able to um, minister or service them if, if they need something. Uh, I, I want to be there ready for them. So um, that's been a, that has been a blessing through the whole thing, too, to, to know that I've got um, people that I love and I think they love me back and that we I'm, I'm wanting God to watch out for them. And I'm pretty sure they want God to watch out for me. So uh, I, I'm I, I'm still enjoying being a, a chaplain. And I, I, any times that I've had to miss um it's been an empty time for me. I, I, I missed that. So um, I, I get back as often as I can, barring major mechanical difficulties. Yeah, we had some difficulties earlier this year, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. So it, so uh, I'm, I'm still chaplain. I'm, I'm making every event that I can make. Um, and, of course, if I was a retired person, I'd probably just get in my motorhome and just be everywhere that it's going on just to – just to be there and uh, just for the end cases and so that we can uh, at least pray with everybody once each day during our invocation. I, I just really enjoy that and feel like that's where I'm really supposed to be. Excellent. So let's talk about your, your missions to Africa. Yeah. You know, during my military career, I, I've, I've been to some third world countries and, uh, uh, working as a army veterinarian, and so I've been a lot of places. And so I, my daughter and son-in-law, um, he decided to become a missionary to Africa, to a um, a women's and children's hospital they had set up in um, uh, Kuchala, uh, Mali, Mali, Africa. Uh, that's the same country where Timbuktu is. I didn't know that until they decided to go there. I was looking at the map, like, well, Timbuktu is in Mali, Africa. So, so it's kind of, you, you always thought it was a made up place, but it's not. Um, so we, uh, uh, they, they left and just as soon as they got there, she got pregnant. It was going to be their fourth child. And she, uh, had her baby in uh, the last of March, uh, that year. And, uh, we flew in the first of April to see the new baby. She was two weeks old. And this is, you know, this is the sixth poorest country in the world. They don't have much. Um, so I was really looking forward to it and uh, had talked to some people who I, uh, through a, a Christian missionary venture uh, about what there was a group that would go there once a year to do some uh, vaccinations for the livestock. So I hooked up with them. I found out what they had and. Uh, and how they did it. So I got a hold of a drug company that donated uh, 90,000 doses. Wow. Um, it was doses that was uh, set to expire within a year. So it was worth something to them. But anyway, so uh, I had uh, eight of the largest duffel bags, civilian duffel bags you can buy, packed with all this. It was actually injectable wormers. And uh, so we took those, uh, and uh, each bag was $100 for the airplane. Um, 
in the church we 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 go to, uh, we had uh, eight people come up and give us a hundred dollars to cover the price of the bags to get in. Wow! So we we went with the idea of vaccinating some cows. Well, when we get there, we we find that some of the doctors are interested in going out, getting out of the hospital there and going out into the one of the villages, we went to three different villages and a couple of the nurses. So we caravanned out with uh, all this vaccine or weren't deworming, injectable dewormers. And uh, uh, the, it had been publicized that we were going to be at this one corral, which is a big concrete corral, no wood over there because of termites. And we, we you look out over, it's just a sub-Saharan and you look out over the horizon and it's desert and scrub and you could see it looked like movement. Or, or you couldn't tell it was anything there, but um, we saw that. And by the hundreds, these shepherd boys were bringing in uh, goats and sheep, uh, uh, a few donkeys um, and cows. Um, they're a mixed breed cow with huge horns, you know, uh, almost like a longhorn, but not quite as long. And with well, the first day, uh, we ultimately can't remember how we did each day, but we in three days we did over thirty thousand injections. Wow! There, I had brought uh, these looks like a pistol, but you load it up with uh, uh, with your drug and use the same needle from animal to animal, and you inject, pull the trigger, inject, pull the trigger, and we had uh, five guns. And the corrals and the, the shepherd boys were, the shepherds were, were moving them from the corral into the chute. Uh, we have a have really long chute that held about six. So there was like two or three on one side or two or three on the other side doing injections. And as they came down, we had one of, one of my grandsons who was there had a, uh, a big, uh, uh, like a crayon. And he would mark each one that got a shot so they, we wouldn't double shoot them. And uh, when it was all said and done, we'd done almost 32,000 injections. One of the chiefs, the, the chiefs own the village. They own all the land that people come into that village and put their houses on. And uh, we had um, one chief at one village and one chief at another village give land to the uh, Baptist church that has a... Um, like a seminary there, the Bible college. And so we had two and they got lots of um, pastors that's been through the Bible college, but no place for them to go. So during that three days of being out in the villages, we were able to get two church locations given to us by the chiefs. Wow. So that was, that was pretty, that, that amazed me. It's like, wow. You know, they're, they're Muslim. Uh, I don't speak Bambara. Um, uh, uh, I don't speak French. That's the two languages they use there. Uh, I was using interpreters. Uh, we saw kids who had never seen a white person before, ever, come up. And some were afraid and would cry and run away. Some would touch my skin and rub it. Um, it was, and all these, these um, uh, shepherds, Coming in off this waste, I mean, it's a wasteland. These, you know, skinny cows, sheep, and goats are just bags of bones walking around eating scrub. 
These the the ones with the cows were no more than twelve years old, and the one with the sheep, the ones with sheep and goats were no more than eight years old. So you know you you hear about shepherds and you read the Bible about the shepherds came. The the odds are these shepherds they were talking about were little boys. They're, I mean they're coming in. They don't have water with them. They got a stick to drive their uh, uh, their their livestock around. Uh, they're barefoot. Uh, they do not let their legs or their uh, upper bodies show at all. They always wear a shirt and always wear long pants. Uh, barefoot, long pants, and a shirt on coming out of the wasteland with nothing except a stick. Um, it was just amazing to see what the people, how much the people put into staying alive there. It was just it's just amazing. That's incredible. It must I have, have people asking, says, well, did you see any giraffes and elephants? And I go, no, man, they, they ate those right. years ago. There, there's nothing there. It's like, it was, it was very, uh, I was very glad to get to go to see how they live and how they get by. It's amazing how they get by. Right. Well, is there anything that you haven't touched on or we haven't discussed that you would like to talk about? You know, Rich, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. Well, I would like to say thank you, Tom, for coming on board and sharing your fascinating, absolutely fascinating life with us and your, you know, how you got involved in motorsports and, your military career and your, your work with the, you know, with the mission and everything. And I, I really appreciate you sharing your life with us. Well, I, Rich, I've enjoyed talking about it. It, it, my, I, it. You know, sometimes when you just look at your life, everybody's got an interesting life. If you can verbalize it, because everybody's got something that they did that no one else has done. And so uh, I like hearing people's stories too. That's the one thing that, you know, I, I think that I know most everybody that we have, that I've interviewed, I I know him in some capacity. Nobody's been a stranger. And after the interviews, I know everybody so much more personally. And I hope everybody that listens to the conversations with Big Rich pulls something out from each one of the conversations to help them in their life or with their future. And, uh, I think that, you know, with the things that we've talked about, I hope there's some possibilities there for people to, uh, to find some direction. Well, I, I, I hope so too. And, uh, you, um, my, my phone number is no secret to anybody that goes on and looks at, uh, rfc.org. Um, my, my email address and my phone numbers there. And if anybody's listening to this and, and they just want to ask a question about something. If if they need to know something, or if they got something that's bothering them, that I might be able to help them through. I, I'm ready, willing, and able anytime for anybody to give me a call. And uh, I, I would appreciate being able to assist anybody. Well, that's awesome to hear. And thank you, Tom, for that. And uh, thank you for spending the afternoon with me on your lunch hour here and, uh, and discussing your life. I really appreciate it. 
Well, you're welcome, and I enjoy talking to you, Rich. I always enjoy talking to you. You know that. Yeah. Been been good friends for a while, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. You too. If you enjoy these podcasts, please give us a rating. Share some feedback with us via Facebook or Instagram, and share our link among your friends who might be like-minded. Well, that brings this episode to an end. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you next week with Conversations with Big Rich. Thank you very much.